This is part two of my conversation with Scott Smethurst and Diana Yonita about their work at LifeWorks, a well-being company that was acquired for $400 million in part thanks to the work that Scott and Diana did, turning around some business-critical features using serverless technologies very, very quickly. In this episode, we talked about platform limitations and problems with tools such as CloudWatch, CloudWatch Logs, and X-Ray. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation and give us a follow on Twitter at RealWorldSOS if you do. And another thing I want to ask about your work at LifeWorks is that you've got, what, 25 different microservices. How do the microservices interact with each other it's all via synchronous API calls, or were you using a lot of events through SNS or SQS or EventBridge? I would say it was mostly through messaging. So yeah, when something happened, a service would publish an event, another microservice could subscribe to that event if it was of interest and you know react in some way to it. I would say occasionally a service would call another service if it was you know, get me this and that service own that data. I know there's a lot of debate on whether that's the right way of doing things, but yeah, that's what we were doing and it didn't seem to cause too much bother. But yeah, most of it was through messaging and there wasn't that much inter-service communication going on really. Okay. And um, Deanna, before we started the show, you mentioned that uh, you guys are also using step functions as well. What are you guys doing with step functions? Yeah, so at LifeWorks with Step Functions, we built a workflow, well, a couple of workflows for interacting with Localize, which is a tool which translates copy either automatically or with actual human beings that know the languages. They had uh, good webhooks and you could do things with the tool out of the box, but we found some use cases that were not covered. For instance, we had multiple repositories and when we pushed changes to them, we wanted translations to happen automatically. So we built a workflow with step functions, which would first detect that new keys had been added to localize and then create translation orders and tasks to translate internally as well. We had that requirement. And when translations were finished, something would pick them up and create pull requests on our repository that was built with step functions. All right. That sounds pretty cool. Quite a good use case for step functions. So earlier, Diana, you also mentioned that keeping up with everything that's happening in AWS and learning everything is quite challenging. Are there any other platform limits or lack of tooling that makes life difficult for you when you're working with Lambda on a day-to-day basis? Since I mentioned step functions just now, there's a use case that I'm currently building a step function for to get some automated transcriptions, but I'm finding that they can't be triggered by SNS or SQS events, <laughs> which meant that I have to introduce a proxy Lambda, which picks up that event and starts the step function. That's one limitation. Another thing that's been hitting us recently is that the 64 character limit on IAM role names. I don't understand the character limit. <laughs> uh, there's a plugin that generates it based on your Lambda function name, region, and other parameters. And we tend to name our Lambda functions so that we understand what they're doing just by their names. So yeah, the 64 character limit is, a, is an issue for us. I hate that, that limit so much. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. 
I had Sorry. to I had to plus one not on the limit. It's it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one other thing that I ran into in the past few months, we were trying to use Lambda Edge to modify a response coming out of an API, but we ha we needed to cache the response of the API, but still change it. Well, basically um, shuffle around some elements of an array to make it appear that it was a different response to the user. Uh, so we tried looking into Lambda and Edge to do that, but we found that you can't modify the response body for some reason. So yeah, that's a limitation. I mentioned, I guess, CloudWatch logs that you can't search for logs across regions. Okay. Yeah. So that, uh, that Lambda Edge one, that's interesting. I guess that may be a security reason why they don't let you modify the body at the edge. There's potentially other things you could try. In this case, uh, the Cloudflare workers, they are really good products. One of the amazing things about Cloudflare workers is that they can update globally within a few seconds, whereas uh, on CloudFront right now, which they have just shortened to a few minutes, but still, that is still quite a big difference compared to the sort of developer experience and feedback you get when you work with uh, Cloudflare workers. And what about you, Scott? Do you say anything that you find annoying besides the 64 <laughs> characters limit on the IEM roles? <laughs> that one definitely sprung to mind uh, as Diana was talking. Yeah, I really hate that. Because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the main solution we seem to have to that is just to shorten your function name and make it less descriptive, which is something you don't typically uh, want to do. Another thing that springs to mind... You can set a reserved concurrency on a Lambda function. I guess one thing I don't like about the way that works is I would like to be able to set a maximum number of concurrent instances for a Lambda function without it eating into the account-wide limit. For anyone who, that sounds a bit weird, but for anyone who's not sure what I'm talking about, I think the default account-wide limit for concurrent Lambdas is a 1,000. It's a soft limit. But if I was then to give a Lambda function a reserved concurrency of 50, it would reduce the account-wide limit to 950. So yeah, by kind of limiting the concurrency on a Lambda, I'm eating into that account-wide limit. I'm curious why they can't just make it so you can set a maximum without doing that. I don't think there's any technical reason why you can't. And also that naming reserve concurrency is also super confusing. Uh, until they introduced the provision concurrency, a lot of people thought um, reserve concurrency means that, that you reserve 50 instances of containers for this Lambda function, so they're always 50 available, whereas uh, it doesn't mean that at all. It actually means 50 maximum concurrency for this function. And the reason why it's called reserve is because you're reserving 50 out of your 1,000 regional concurrency for this particular function. And it's funny that it works as both the max as well as a reservation of some concurrency out of your regional limit. It's a bit confusing. And the fact that it does both things and the way it's named is not helpful. I agree. It's a horrible name. And I can see why people thought that it did reserve, yeah, you know, sort of 50 warm instances or whatever, because it does kind of sound like that from the name. I think the main other gripe I have day to day is, I mean, Diana's already touched on it, but it's CloudWatch, really. You know, it, it'd be really nice if you didn't have to so quickly consider third-party tools for stuff like log aggregation and monitoring I mean, CloudWatch is getting better. I think, you know, it can aggregate your logs now, but as 
the Anna's touched upon, it'll only do that within the scope of a region. I just find its interface not that nice to use as well. I mean, in a lot of the other monitoring tools, if you kind of see an error on a chart, you can very easily pivot to the logs from the chart. That's just not easily done in CloudWatch either. I really would like it if you could just remain within the ecosystem of AWS without having to even consider using stuff like Datadog. I think the same goes with stuff like X-Ray, which is a really cool tool, but it's you know it's nowhere near as advanced as some of the other stuff out there, you know, like Lumigo and all these kind of tools. I'm just curious why AWS haven't invested a bit more in, in the DevOps side of things, you know, to make it easier to manage this stuff once it's actually out in the wild. I think part of that is that AWS has, at least traditionally, has this tendency to prioritize cost over developer experience. In fact, that also applies to when you take any AWS certifications and you are explicitly told that if there are two answers, both are correct, you are supposed to pick the answer that's got a lower cost. And that also applies to a lot of decisions that they've made for CloudWatch, for X-Ray. For example, CloudWatch Logs Insights lets you query multiple logs at the same time, but only up to 20 log groups. So you kind of have to know what you're looking for or roughly the ballpark before you can even hope to find what it is that, oh, I've got a bit of string from an error message. I just want to find out where it came from. Well, if you've got 175 functions in your case, well, good luck. That means you've got to query you know, groups of 20 at a time unless you know roughly what it is you're looking for and where to find them. Again, that is because they don't want to add cost for their customers, which is great. But then again, it comes at a sacrifice of a really great developer experience. And the same goes to simple things like until recently, they wouldn't even show you the metric for number of concurrent executions, even though you don't pay for that metric, I don't think. Uh, but also things like uh, in your logs, you will see a report of how long your function ran for, the duration, how long you were built for, as well as init duration. So the build duration and init duration, those are useful information for me to find out. But again, they don't expose those as metrics for cost reasons. So I think a lot of these tools are not as good as they should be because they prioritize cost over the actual developer experience. And that's something that I guess I appreciate. It helps keep my AWS costs down, but at the same time, that often means that everyone gets pushed to some third-party service that you end up having to pay even more just because the built-in tools are not as good as they could have been. I was just thinking that, as you said, it. I mean, it's a nice idea, but in some ways it's a false economy if you then go into another third-party product and paying even more to those guys. So ultimately the customer's still paying. Uh, yep, and especially when you have to go to something like Datadog, which is just amazingly expensive. <laughs> I've had so many companies uh, move from Datadog because uh, the way they charge you based on number of resources. So you've got, I don't know, a thousand containers. Well, you're going to pay five bucks per month for us, every single one of those guys. Uh, so your costs start to ramp up really, really quickly. And many of the other vendors uh, you find in this particular space also are really expensive, especially when you start using their APM solutions. Essentially, they are kind of a version of X-Ray, but auto-instrumented. Another thing, another gripe I have with X-Ray just it takes a lot of work on a developer part to actually instrument all of your code, whereas things like Lumigo does a lot of the work for you to auto-instrument your system so that you don't have to instrument every single place where you have AWS DK, every place where you are doing an API call to some third-party HTTP endpoint. 
to be fair, if you have, uh, if you're using Node.js or something that supports modules, you can write a module that wraps and you would just use that instead of having to instrument every HTTP call or every AWS SDK call. But for every function where you're requiring the HTTP, you have to either require a custom one uh, that you have pre-wrapped or you have to require that and then use the extra SDK to wrap the HTTP module, right? Uh, yeah, that's what we did at LifeWorks. We had we were using instead of SuperAgent, we were using a wrapper of SuperAgent uh, over SuperAgent that we called HTTP client with tracing, and uh, it would make sure that all the HTTP calls we did were traced. Yeah, one nice thing we had as well was it just used a little environment variable, so you could turn tracing on and off within a, a service, and it it knew about that variable and would just knock it off. We wanted to avoid exactly what you described, Jan, where we'd have to put this x-ray code absolutely all over the place. We just wrote it in two places, basically. Yeah, one in, for the HTTP stuff and the second place for the AWS SDK. Okay, yep. Yeah. And have you monitored your cold start time since you made that change? The cold start time? I mean, I believe we were monitoring cold start times, but I'd be lying if I could tell you we did a before and after when we introduced X-Ray or not. We didn't have, like I said, it was controlled by an environment variable, so we weren't tracing on absolutely everything. We we would knock it on if we felt we needed to. Uh, for example, if we'd released you know, something new and we were a little bit concerned about it, we knew, well, if there is a problem, I'd really like it. If I had traces, then we'd knock it on. Yeah, so the moment you require the extra SDK, regardless whether or not you use it, that's going to add about what, 150, maybe 200 milliseconds to, well, maybe not as bad nowadays, but certainly when I last so measured it, it was 100 plus milliseconds uh, just by requiring the extra SDK. And then maybe some more for actually instrumenting the HTTP client or the AWS SDK. Guys, it's a lot large, just the X-ray one, yeah. Have you tried requiring AWS SDK X-ray core? I think that's what we were doing. It might be smaller. Yep. So that's what I was doing okay. as well. It wasn't the full extra SDK. It was just the core. Okay. So yeah, that thing's pretty heavy. And also when you start using it, when you do anything locally, it just breaks. <laughs> you have to do so much things just to sort of toggle it off uh, so that when I run it functions locally, it doesn't break. Uh, I remember that was just a matter of setting an environment variable, wasn't it? That, yes. Uh, but then there's also another thing is that if you record the custom trace segments, then that just doesn't work. That would just bark. <laughs> ah, I see. Yeah, I'm not sure we were using it to that level. I th we were doing very, very basic tracing. It's bloody useful, though, <laughs> to be fair. You know, if you having um, X-ray traces of all of the all of your HTTP calls and all of your AWS calls versus having nothing, it's certainly useful. But I didn't realize... There was such an insane performance on cold starts. That's crazy. Yeah. So X-Ray does have got the built-in sampling. So once you hit, I think, five, something like that, the request per second, it kicks into sampling. So you can also just customize your sampling configuration based on the service name or just apply the, you know, change the global default setting. But still, that performance overhead is uh, more excessive than I would like. So I want to cover one more thing before we go, which is... Imagine you can ask AWS to improve something, anything. What would be your number one ask for them to improve to make your life better? I think for me, it would be, yeah, some of the gripes we've, we've already talked about. Previously, I would have said cold start times within a VPC. That used to drive me nuts. 
because it, it meant you know certain things just couldn't be used for example if you wanted to have a lambda function talking to an elastic ash cluster it has to be in a, a vpc because that's how they're secured and it was just a ridiculous time uh, for cold starts i mean i must admit i've not firsthand tried out the difference but i hear the improvements are very significant so i guess that's probably sort of solved now so yeah maybe my new biggest gripe would be um some of the stuff i've said around the monitoring and uh x-ray type stuff it would be cool if they had you know they were just a little bit more useful i appreciate they're never going to get to the level of some of the dedicated products but even if you could go easily to error charts you get in the Lambda console and pivot straight to the log entry for that error, even that would make me very happy. Uh, yeah, I have to agree with Scott. If anything, uh, CloudWatch logs improvements would be a real win. So there's actually one thing I learned about the CloudWatch logs, which we used to struggle with, which was, you know how you can only have a one subscription filter per log group? So it turns out that's not a hard limit per se, but the only way to raise that for the account is by raising a support ticket, not a service limit raise, but a support ticket and ask for an increase on your account. Then you can have more than one subscription filter for every single log group. That is not discoverable at all. No, not at all. Okay, so uh, we're coming up to the hour mark and I'd like to thank you guys very much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's always a pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, before we go, is there anything that you'd like to tell the listeners? Maybe you know, tell them where to find you guys on the internet and uh, if uh, life works or uptime is hiring in London? I think the only thing I'd like to say is, yeah, the current client is a, is a new startup called Uptime. They're a new company creating a next generation learning app with very carefully curated bite-sized content from various world-renowned experts. The idea of it is that you'll be able to turn, you know, that 15 minutes of downtime you might have in the day into uptime, you know, where you actually help yourself grow and you learn something. The app will be launched fairly soon, hopefully even next month keep your eye out for it and if anyone's interested they can visit the website it's uptime.app there are some job openings as well but not developer ones currently but there are a bunch of roles in the product and content space so if that's your bag then yeah please take a look and, and apply where can people find you guys uh well the best place to find me is on linkedin maybe mention that you've listened to the podcast because I, I get messages from people that i don't know all the time yeah, I don't really use Twitter, to be honest, Jan. I'm, I'm the same as Diana. I'm, I'm best found on LinkedIn. I need to improve my social media game like you. I'm rubbish. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Uh, again, thank you guys uh, very much for doing this today. And uh, enjoy the rest of the evening. And look forward to seeing you guys again for ramen next time. Look forward to it. See you soon, mate. Thanks, Jan. See ya. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. So that's it for my conversation with Scott and Diana about their serverless story at LifeWorks. I want to thank you guys for joining us this week. To access the show notes and transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com and I'll see you guys next week.